We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for each person that's here. We ask that you guide and lead us through your word as we look at the book of Ezekiel and you'll have us see what you'd want us to see. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 3, starting at verse 22. And the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he said unto me, Arise, go forth into the plain, and I will talk with you there. Then I arose and went out forth into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there as the glory which I saw by the river Sabar, and I fell on my face. Then the Spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet and spake to me, and said unto me, Go, shut yourself in within your house. But you, O son of man, behold, they shall put bands upon you and shall bind you with them, and you shall not go out among them. I will make your tongue cleave to the roof of your mouth, that you shall be dumb, and you shall not be to them a reprover, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, He that hears, let him hear, and he that forbear, let him forbear, for they are a rebellious house. So we're going to look at this. Remember, we were looking at just previous to this that God told him that he was to be a watchman and the watchman has to call out when there's trouble and if he did, as long as he spoke he would he would be not be guilty of their blood but if he didn't speak then he'd be guilty of his blood of their blood and here God is telling him something very interesting he says arise and go forth into the plain and I will talk with you there God likes to bring us into quiet places for us to hear now, it doesn't literally have to be a plane, but have you ever noticed in your life when things are really hectic and hard, it's hard to hear God's voice, and you have to really focus and, and to hear him? I know that's true for me. In the middle of all, and it's chaotic, and, and things are going on, it's hard to hear his voice. And sometimes you just have to separate yourself and say, God, I just, you and me, God. I'm going to turn off the TV, the radio. I'm going to go hide in the, the back room or whatever it takes. You go and separate yourself to listen to God. And it can, doesn't take a long time to, to be able to listen to him. But here we see that he's being obedient to God and he walked. Verse 23 says, Then I arose and went forth into the plain, and behold the glory of the Lord which he saw by the, river, by the river Sebar at the very beginning of the book. And he saw God. And, a, and the, the normal response when they see God, they fall on their face. They, you know, this, is, this is such a consistent thing that happens. People see God, they come into his presence, and they're overwhelmed. And I don't know if you've been there. I know I have felt it at times when I've just been overwhelmed by God's presence. I don't necessarily fall on my face, but there is that humbling point when you, God's presence just falls upon you. Whether it's in worship or in study or listening or just praying, whatever it might be, and you just all of a sudden realize that you're in God's presence. And we see this over and over. It's a recurring theme when God comes and he talks to these people. And the glory of the Lord is this a splendor. The reputation of God is being revealed to him. And he sees things differently than he's been seeing them. And remember, he saw the vision in chapter 1 of the cherubim and God riding on the cherubim. Chapter 2, he was called by God to a job. And now here we are in chapter 3 and God is starting to say, this is going to be what you're doing. And this is, he said over and over in chapter 3, you're going to a rebellious people. They're not going to listen to you. And I think about this. He is not the only prophet that was told you're going to be sent to Israel and they're not going to listen. I don't know that I would like to know. I mean, if they're not going to listen to me, at least make me, let me believe that they might listen to me. Uh, but how do you stay motivated to preach to people when there's no when God has already told you they're not going to listen. You know, they're not going to listen. You're going to be wasting your breath. Not wasting your breath because God told you to do it, but you know, you're going to just talk to them and they're not going to listen to you. And then I, in verse 24, Then the Spirit entered into me and set me up on my feet and spoke with me 
and said, go shut yourself up in your house. But I look at this. The spirit entered in. Is this a third person? The third person spirit? Yes, the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, Holy Spirit's re- represented often in the, in the Old Testament. But I love it here because there is a huge school of thought that says that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not enter into people and that it was a New Testament phenomenon. I have always believed that it's a different mentality from the Hebrews to the Greek. That when God came upon the Hebrew people, that he literally came into them in the same way he has in the New Testament. And so here we see him actually saying the Spirit entered in. And again, this comes down to my belief that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He he hasn't changed between the Old Testament and New Testament. He's always been a loving, gracious God all through the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, he has those vengeance and, and you know, he struck dead Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit and trying to make it look like they had given all to the church. And so he struck them dead. So God is still acting today as he did in the past and in the past as he does today. And here we see the Spirit entered in and filled him and lifted him up and I really truly believe when it says in the Old Testament that the Spirit came upon them it was just the Hebrews way of thinking that that they were filled and actually in their case they were enveloped by the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit in in a way that we probably wouldn't think of as being infilled but here he sees he goes forth and he says go shut yourself in your house so first he takes him out to the plain First he takes them out to the plain where they can be, be, be together by themselves. And he says, okay, now you're leaving the plain. You're leaving where I'm at right now. Go into your house and shut the door and spend time with me. So God is not done working with him yet. And this is something we need to be able to understand. We need times when we're shutting ourselves alone with God. Very important in our life, whether it's, just a quiet time in the morning or in the evening or in the middle of the day, whatever it might be, we need time when it's just God and, and ourself. And that could be prayer, it could be in the word, it could be singing to him, it could just be being silent and listening. But it is important. All through this time we see with uh, Moses, he was out on the backside of the desert and God humbled him and made him a shepherd where he would have all this time with nobody else around to just be able to communicate with God. And we see this all through the scriptures. That people were called aside to have God talk to them. Elijah went away and was hidden by the brook, Jabrook, and, and uh, God ministered to him and said, I'm going to take care of you and showed him how, his, how he was. Jesus, it tells us, he went away early in the morning or early uh, late at night to get away from the crowd so he and the Father could be alone. Now, Jesus needed to get away and be with the Father. We know we need to be getting away and being with the Father. And here we're seeing Ezekiel being told, go. Go into your house. Shut, your, shut yourself in. And then it says, but you, O son of man, behold, you shall, they shall put bands on you and shall bind you with them and you shall not go out from among you. So he said they're going to put bands or fetters. Uh, leg irons we might consider. Uh, if you've seen the uh, news reports where somebody's coming into, from prison into jail, oftentimes they'll be with leg irons and they stretch up to their hands and the, you know, so they can't get away. This is what he's talking about, that kind of fettering that says, you're going where they want, you know, going to do what they want because you have no choice in the matter. And that's what he's referring to here in Ezekiel 4. That uh, they're going to bind you with these fetters. They're going, to, they're going to have you go with them. And here he says in verse 26, And I will make your tongue cleave to the roof of your mouth, and you shall be dumb, and you shall not be for them a reprover, for they are a rebellious people. God was not going to let Ezekiel speak reproof to them. And you, you look at this. This sounds really, really harsh. You know, have you ever had it seem like your tongue was stuck to your, 
stuck in your mouth. It just wouldn't move. You could not say anything. Sometimes I think it's God keeping us from saying the wrong things. But here he's, God is telling him, I am going to make it so that you cannot speak to them, either good or bad in this case. And it says, I'm going to make you as dumb, unable to speak. And this is, and I think this is so interesting because it's just at the beginning of this chapter, he's telling them, if you don't speak, you're not doing what I'm telling you to do. And yet God's saying, in this case, I'm not going to let you be their reprover because they are going to do what they want to do. The hardness of people's hearts. And this is something we sometimes as Christians will do this. We get a hard heart and we just decide, I am not going to be obedient to God. I don't care what you do to me or how you, how you try to make it happen. But we see it also in, in Pharaoh. It said that God hardened his heart. And in, and in some of the verses it said Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh had no desire to obey God. And, and even when he wanted to, God said, no, it's not time yet. Because he knew that Pharaoh was not ready for it to happen. And we see over and over God making things happen. We think about, you know, I've heard some people say that Jesus healed everybody he came across. Well, no, not everybody that he came even near his path got healed. Many did, maybe even most. But not everybody got healed that was in Jesus' path because some didn't want to be at the right time or weren't, weren't ready for it, and it wasn't the right time for God to be glorified. When the Spirit moves, it is to glorify God. Always. God will always be glorified when the Spirit moves. When people get healed, it is so that God gets the glory. Uh, think of Peter and John in, in, in Acts where they went to the temple and they met that lame man who wanted to, wanted, just wanted money. And they turned to him and said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you. In the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. And the man rose, jumped up, was dancing and running around and praising God. The whole purpose of the healing was that God received praise. And we need to make sure that we keep it in mind that God deserves praise. And if God's not being lifted up, then things aren't going to happen. And we want to be able to say this is for God's glory. Whether it's healing, whether it's teaching, whether it's somebody getting saved, all of that is for God's glory so he can show his grace, his mercy. And we want to be able to lift him up in all that he does. And this is one of the things I keep telling us. We always need to keep in mind when things happen in our life and when things happen in our spirit, we need to make sure we keep remembering that they are blessings from God. Because God gives us so many blessings and we tend to start thinking of his blessings after a while as normal. And he needs to, we need to see that it is his blessing. And give it to him. Getting what you don't deserve is grace. Okay. Not getting what you deserve is mercy. Okay. All right, verse 27. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, He that hears, let him hear, and he that forbear, let him forbear, for they are a rebellious person, a house. So he says, when I give you the words to speak, speak. And those who are going to hear, they're going to hear. And those who refuse to hear, they're going to refuse. Very important for us, when God gives us something to say, when we're witnessing, when we're sharing the gospel, when we're sharing our testimony, we are not responsible for what people do with the words what they do with it is between them and God because otherwise we get all bound up well God I've told I've told lots of people and nobody got saved well number one we don't know that for sure because we don't know what happened to them that night when they went home and after they got mad at us and criticized and made fun of us and then all of a sudden God brought the words back to their brain and touched them in a way that we didn't know we never know what is going to happen when people hear God's word. I think about all these tracts and Bibles we've passed out over the, 
over the years with the minor, old Miner's Day parade. I don't know, we've not received any word back that anybody has gotten saved from any of these tracts and Bibles that we've passed out. But we've passed out almost a thousand of them in three years. And you know what? Out of that, I would almost guarantee you somebody somewhere has been touched. If nothing else, seeds have been planted. And God rewards this planting of the seed as much as the, the harvesting of the, of the seed. So we don't know and we won't know until heaven how much people have been touched and whether people have gotten saved. Unless somebody happens to write us a letter and saying, thank you for passing out this track. I got saved on, the, on that day. Now, that is possible to happen, but it hasn't happened in three years. But it's all there to, for them to read, for them to grow, for them to, to, to learn. Same thing that we're doing with the Internet. All these people who are listening on the Internet, or the same people that are listening every month, I don't know, so probably a good number of them are repeat listeners. What is God doing with it? I don't know. Nobody sends us an email. Nobody sends us letters to tell us what they're doing. But you know, God knows. And God knows when we get to heaven, he'll know whether, what rewards we get for just being faithful to deliver, to pass out, to speak. And the other thing that we never know, how many people are touched just by them looking at our life and saying, wow, that Christianity stuff is really working for them. They, they are generally a good person. They usually tell the truth. They're, they seem to be generally happy. You know how much importance that is for a lot of people just to see somebody who is happy most of the time? Because the world is looking for that joy, that, that happiness. And when they can look at a Christian with a smile on their face, not totally depressed, not griping about everything that's happening, you know, going on, and they're going, there's something different. I don't really know what it is, but it must be that Christian thing they keep talking about. It must be God in their life that they keep talking about. We don't even know how many people have come to Christ just because of the way we walk different from the world. And this is why it's important for us to get into God's word, follow God, be a good testimony. And we've spoken about this many times. We as Christians understand God's going to give us grace. He's going to give us mercy. He's not going to give us all the punishment we deserve. And we tend to hold ourselves at a very low standard in general. Well, if I sin, I'll just ask for forgiveness and God will forgive me. Well, that is a true statement. Everybody who's watching you sees that sin as well. And it might be a stumbling block from them. Oh, he forgives you. You are forgiven. You'll be forgiven. You'll face the consequences for it. Mostly here on earth. In heaven, you're going to be forgiven. If you can do something over and over and over with no, with no conviction that it's wrong, at that point, you better start looking and saying, am I saved in the first place? Because he will discipline his children. And he says that no liars, no thieves, no adulterers, no murderers will enter into the kingdom. And in Greek, it is those who do this over and over and over and over repeatedly. But again, the key to that is, are you under conviction? Are you asking forgiveness? If you can sin and you're not convicted of your sin, then you have to wonder, am I one of his children? And if they're not being convicted of their sin, then they really have to be, sit back and say, am I truly saved? And this is, in this area, Baptist and more of the Pentecostal line that believe you can lose your salvation are kind of on the same same path. They will say you lost your salvation. We will say you never had it in the first place. And, but it's not our job to try to judge whether they're saved or not. That they, they are living in sin. They are living in a sinful condition. Again, if you have two people who aren't married living together, they're living in sin, which is fornication. They're not any better off than the one who's living in homosexuality. They're not any better off than somebody who lies every time their lips move. There's a yes and no to that. All sin is sin and you will be punished for it. There is things that God says in Proverbs especially. He says these six things are, you know, are an abomination or, or another one where the seven things that God hates. But they're not the things that humans put in that list. God will say that he hates lying lips, those who curse, those who gossip. Okay, 
Why are those, why are those ones worse in God's sight? I believe is because they, they hurt people and assassinate people at the soul level rather than the physical level. And that's why I think he's, to him, it's a bigger deal for me to go around telling gossip about people because I'm destroying, I'm destroying who they are in a physical sense. And this is what we've said before. You know, we lie to our kids all the time, telling them sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Words hurt more and longer than physical pain. Physical pain will, you know, if you've got a broken bone, you're going to be healed within four to eight weeks, depending on how old you are. You know, the older you are, the longer you'll be out, but it heals. And if it's treated properly, you won't really have any problem from it. But if somebody hurts you with their words, how many people are still suffering to, in their 80s because of things that their parents said to them, you know, you're worthless, you'll never amount to nothing, and then they go through their entire adult years feeling like they're worthless, trying hard to earn to prove their parents wrong and, and never being happy no matter how successful they get. All because the words dug deep into their heart. As far as God's concerned, they still deserve hell and they can still be just as forgiven by accepting Jesus Christ and having it put under the blood of Christ. Now, are there yes and no because there's still consequences for it. The consequences for sin are not the same. Murder is a capital offense in the word of God, and adultery is a capital offense, and homosexuality is a capital offense. Lying is just a sin, okay? It does not have the same consequence, physical consequence. And in your example of somebody doing, being bad all their life and then coming to Christ at the end, yes, they're going to heaven, but they've missed out on a lot of rewards that they should have had for all, of their, all their life. The person who is good and doesn't come to Christ is still going to die in their sins and go to hell. But the person who comes to Christ and is good most of their life, they've studied God, they're trying, they will have a lot of rewards in heaven that the other person does not have. So there is a difference in heaven as well. And I don't believe that. Jesus, in the parable of the talents, said, Take from him who had one and give to him who had ten. He who, had, who, he who has done well will receive more. And I believe that's not just talking about this world. Because it was at the end when he held an accounting, which meant he was at the Bema seat, saying, You just got in. You, you're here. You got in. But you're not going to be rewarded. Now, what it means to have a reward in heaven, I have no idea what it means to be. It obviously means something. Now, what it means, who knows? Because we can only try to look from our sinful state and say, I want, I want everything. I want everything. I'm greedy. That's not part of heaven. So what does it mean to have great rewards and responsibility in heaven? I don't know. I do not believe that everybody in heaven is equal. And I don't think the scriptures teach that. And I can go, we can go through all the different scriptures on that. The, the rewards, the fact that we're going to stand at the Bema seat and, and, and be given rewards means there's something of difference in heaven. Now, what exactly that means, I don't know. Because heaven is different. I believe heaven is very different than most people believe it is anyway. Because you get into the Old Testament pictures of heaven. And they're talking about commerce and, and all these other things going on and work and all these different things going on in the new heaven and new earth. That means when Jesus said, I will give you authority over 10 cities, he meant authority over 10 cities. And we know that the angels have hierarchy as well. We know that there are low level angels. We know that there's some that are over 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 a group of people. We know there's ones over nations, which means that there's angels reporting to them. If it's true for the angels, why would it be any different for us as humans when we die that there won't be some kind of hierarchy to the point where there's just some people down there not over anything because they accepted Christ at the last moment or didn't do anything in their entire life other than accept him and barely barely made it into heaven. So the, I, I see it. The angels are that way. Jesus talked about it being that way. Paul talked about the Bema seat and rewards. I do not believe that everybody is going to be equal in heaven. People want to believe that. And the ones who really want to believe it are the ones that aren't serving God. 
I'm going to be equal if everybody, you know, these pastors worked their butt off all, the, all these years. The evangelist worked his, his butt off all these years. These other people, these other fools worked in church all their life, and I'm going to be equal to them just because I accepted Jesus as my Savior. God is a just, righteous God, and I don't believe that's a true statement. He is going to be rewarding those who deserve it. Now, what does that mean in heaven? I don't know exactly what that means. I believe that we will be learning for eternity which means some people may be teachers in heaven who spent their time learning about, about God. And some people will need to play catch-up. Going back to what you'll, you'll, you'll hear a lot of people go, well, God's just going to impute all the knowledge you ever need to know as soon as you walk through the doors of heaven. I don't think that's true. Because one of the greatest things in this world is to learn. At least I believe so. You know, the greatest thing that we can do in this world is to learn. Whether it's about God or just general learning, but that is where the greatest things happen, and I believe that we will learn forever. Because God is not going to give us all knowledge when we, ever, because he is the only one with all knowledge. So we will always be learning, in my, is where I, what I believe. Now, if I'm wrong, that's fine. I'll go to heaven and I'll be wrong. But, but I don't see us all being 100% equal when we get to heaven. I know. Oh, believe me, so have I. Yeah, the only thing that can't be forgiven is to reject Jesus Christ and you've got up until you die for that. And that's the one thing that won't be forgiven because you have to accept, it, accept him to be, your, be saved and have eternal life. But you're right. A lot of people believe that when we get to heaven, we'll all be equal and everything will be the same and because it's all Jesus Christ. And I can, under, I, I can understand why they say that, but it doesn't fit with a lot of the other things that we're told. You'll always be, it'll, it'll always happen. Now, from, for their defense, I understand what they're saying. It's all by grace. It's all by what Jesus did. So therefore, there's nothing that, that we do. And I understand where they're coming from. And they'll take one of my favorite verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So they're going to go, well, see, this one, that doesn't say anything about heaven. It says everything about salvation. So again, it's we take a verse and say, this is what I'm looking at, and it's not what it's talking about. Because then you're going to have to say, well, Jesus lied when he said he's going to reward somebody more than, more than somebody else. That enough, that one statement is enough for me <laughs> to know that not everybody in heaven is equal. There's going to be rewards for good stewardship. And that's one of the reasons why when somebody comes to the Lord at the last moment of their life, they're going to get to heaven, yes, but they're not going to have rewards because they haven't had time to earn any rewards in heaven. The, the old adage of, you know, it's better to be the street sweeper in heaven than to not be there is true. I mean, just being in heaven is better than not being there. God told me I can earn some awards. I want to earn awards. I don't know what it means to have more rewards when I get to heaven. Maybe I just hand them all back to Jesus. I don't know. But I would like to be able to, if that's the only thing, I want to hold the whole truckload of rewards back to him. But when Jesus said that he would be reward those, if you were faithful, you would be given more responsibility, I do not believe is just on this world. I believe because of the way he worded it at the day that he re recorded the reckoning. When is that? When we stand before him at the Bema seat. That will be the day where we will give an account for everything that we have done. Or he'll take our works, actually throw everything in the fire and, and pull out the gems and rewards and have them back to us. There is that time when rewards will be given out to us. If somebody wants to believe that in heaven everybody's equal, I'm not going to sit there and argue with them. I will say, here's the verses. You can do what you want with them. You can, you can disagree with them. You can say it's all on this earth and not in heaven. It's up to you. The idea is don't look for praise on this earth. You know, to, to do things to try to get rewards is one thing. To do what you're doing because it's going to be rewarded is one thing, but don't sit there and try to get the praise of man. Yeah, and that's why I'm saying we're going to have a different, we're not going to have our sin nature. So what does, it, what does the rewards mean in heaven? I don't know. All I know is that God very clearly talks about rewards so they have some value. The whole thing is even in this world, it's not wrong to, be, to give somebody a reward or to be rewarded. We do that when we go to work. We trade our time and expect at the end of the week or the end of the, used to be the end of the day, but now at the end of the week or the end of two weeks to get the reward for the time we've put in. All right, in that case, we've earned it. And most, and a reward needs to be earned. And in our day and age, rewards are starting to just be handed out just because. And that's a satanic thing. 
We now reward everybody who plays on the team equally. You can't have a most valuable player anymore because that's setting a player above everybody else, and that may, that'll mean that the other ones feel bad because they weren't as good as... And that is very satanic. Everybody is equal. And this is where we get into this whole thing of heaven. I don't believe that that's the way God is going to work when he gets to heaven. It's not what Jesus said. It's not what's indicated. And yet the world's going to say, well, what will end up happening from that mentality is if you don't believe that you're going to be rewarded, you have no desire to go forward and serve God other than just for pure obedience. And that should be enough, but we know it's not. If you want to really encourage somebody to go, and this is why businesses have Employee of the Month awards. We want to reward the person who's really working hard and, and showing that they're going above and beyond. So we want to give them Employee of the Month or gift certificates or whatever. If you've ever worked for a good company that does these kind of things, a parking space. Well, sometimes that's a good, good benefit, especially when it's up close right by the door. If that's good for us here on earth, why would it be any less good for God in heaven. This is why it's in. Now, am I doing things expecting to be rewarded and saying I'm going to have to be rewarded for doing this? No. And if I go with that attitude, if I'm going with the attitude of I'm doing this just so I get rewarded, I've got the wrong attitude. A true service for God is going to come from the heart. And I tell, I've told you all, I mean, I, the best thing I like about being a pastor is I get paid a little bit of money for doing what I've always done anyway. I've taught people, I've shared people, I've discipled people, I've gone to the hospital to visit people. It's not anything new other than the fact that I get to do it on Sunday morning now too, which is great. <laughs> but I'm doing what I've been doing for almost 40 years. Now I just get to have a little bit of pay for it. I think God will do this with us is, number one, we do it just because He's put it in our heart to do it. And then he gives, us, he gives us earthly rewards for it, and then he gives us spiritual rewards for it. And this is what's great about God is to just serve him, to be blessed. And then he turns around and he gives you great blessing. And here on earth and in heaven as far as I'm concerned. Now, well, I argue with somebody about, you know, you're going to get, you know, there's going to be rewards in heaven and positions in heaven. No, I'll show them the verses and they can do with it It's what they want to do with it. Because there are churches that believe and teach that everybody's equal and always will be equal. I believe that's at salvation, but not following therein. Because otherwise, why is there rewards? You know, what are the rewards for in heaven all about if, there's not, if they don't have some kind of ranking? The angels themselves that are in front of God are ranked. So why would we expect any difference in our life when we get there? Anyway, chapter 4, verse 1. You also, son of man, take you a tile and lay it before you and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem, and lay siege against it and build a fort against it and cast a mound against it and set the camp also against it and set battering rams against it round about. Moreover, take you unto you an iron pan and set it as a wall of iron between you and the city and set your face against it and it shall be besieged and you shall lay siege against it this shall be a sign unto the house of Israel. Now this is kind of a very funny sounding thing. God is so angry with Israel, he's using a picture here for, to show him how angry he is. And he says, get a tile. And as near as we can, this word brings out, he's literally talking about a paving stone. You know how you put the stones in the roads in those days. And he says, portray or engrave on it the city of Jerusalem. So he was to etch in probably a downward view. Here's the city and the different walls and the, and the, and the buildings and everything. And he says, lay siege to it. Now that's a term we don't really use even in our modern warfare. But in the old days, you had a city. It had a wall around it. They did not have the equipment to just blow, up, blow apart the wall. They had to do one of three things to get through a wall. Well, actually, you could do four things. Uh, one is you just circled the wall and you just stayed there until they starved to death. <laughs> okay? That, that took usually a year or more. Most armies weren't that patient. <laughs> the other thing you would try to do, and many times, and you use, many of these you'd use in conjunction, is you would get a bunch of engineers and dig underneath the wall. Great big, great, dig great big tunnels and and come in on the other side of the wall. Or you could use a battering ram against the gates and or uh, 
catapults throwing huge rocks and try to batter the wall down. That didn't work too well usually, especially in a city like Jerusalem that had really thick walls. It worked against the small towns with only a, a small wall, but you get a big thick wall, you could batter it all day long with the biggest rocks you want to <laughs> throw against it and you're only going to put little dents into it. Or you did just what he said here, you build a fort against it. And what this fort was, it was called a siege fort. And if you've ever watched any medieval movies, you see these great big towers that they would build. And up one side of them would be steps and they would roll these big towers up against the side of the building. And at the very top of it would be this ramp that would fall, you know, as soon as you got next to it, it would fall down and you'd walk over the, over the edge of the uh, wall and on, onto the battle site. Now, obviously, the enemy did not try to let you get that tower very close to the, to the city usually, but if you bought, if you'd built 20 or 30 of them, you usually got one or two of them in there, and that breached the wall. So here he's saying, you know, you got to figure this. He's being asked to build this miniature, <laughs> this whole miniaturized thing. You know, draw your city out, build, build a couple towers against it, and then he goes, uh, build a mound against it. That was the other thing they could do. They could just keep piling stuff up until they could walk over the, over the walls. Again, that didn't happen very easily with really big, big walls. Uh, if you're trying to build a, a mound of stuff that is going to go up to a 30-foot wall, you know, you'd be building this mound for a long time. But it was done. Every once in a while, you'll see people do that. And then it says, set a camp against it, which is encircling it. Let I was talking about you encircle it. And the whole purpose of encircling it is so they don't get food or water in. When Hezekiah was king and he was surrounded by the Assyrians and they had been starving to death. And it was kind of amazing because the prophet comes in and says, you know, Right now, the, the head of a donkey is selling for, I can't remember, but some astronomical amount of money. And he goes, tomorrow, you'll have more food than you know what to do with. And there, Hezekiah is looking at 185,000 people outside this wall, and, and we're going to get food tomorrow. And that's the night when the angels came and struck 185,000 Assyrians dead in one night. And the angel of the Lord did that for him. The prophet's prediction went through, but they had circled the city. They were starving them to death. Then it also says, set battering rams against it. So he's got this little, this little picture of Jerusalem on a tile, and then he's got all these little models around it to show people God is going to attack Jerusalem. And remember, Ezekiel had been outside, and he's saying, God did this. And then he said, put the iron pan or a griddle between you, Ezekiel, representing God, and Jerusalem. Now, would that be a big pan or just a little pan? Well, it doesn't say exactly how big it is. It's a griddle for our measurements, you know, a foot, or, you know, a foot. Remember, though, his city is this little tile on the ground. So anything between him and that is blocking it. Literally, it means an iron griddle, an iron pan, uh, similar to what you would use on a two-burner stove, about a foot long and six inches to so wide. But any pan is going to do this because, remember, he's not saying block out the whole city. He's saying, you've got this tile on here that's representing the city. I've encircled it, meaning that it's under siege. And now put this up. And you, Ezekiel, are representing me. And this pan is representing the wall between me and my city. And you've got to understand, when the Jews hear anything negative about Jerusalem, especially in this day and age, it freaks them out because Jerusalem is the center of God. God's temple is there. His, his temple is there. His presence is there. When Jeremiah kept telling the people before they were taken in captivity, God is going to take Jerusalem, their first thought was, there's no way. God's temple is here. This is where they thought that Jerusalem was impenetrable and that could not be taken. And there's lots of reasons for that. Jerusalem sits on the top of a hill, which means that it was hard to take in the first place. And God's presence was there. His temple was there. They were God's special chosen people. They, he would not sell them into captivity. And yet, because of their attitudes toward him, he says, I have set myself against you. This sometimes is what happens and he's, to us when we think, I, we're God's people. He's going he's gonna to protect us no matter what. And when people start sinning just for the sake of sinning and say, well, I'm forgiven. God's grace is going to be there. 
number one, it's just like the Jewish people. These Jews were Jews in name only. They, had not, they did not have a circumcised heart that brought them close to God. And this is what Jeremiah said. He said, God said he would take out their hearts of stone and put hearts of, of uh, fleshly hearts in them, hearts that desired him. We need to be very careful that our hearts don't get hard. But even more so, there are many people who say they are Christians who don't know God. They're just following religious trends. They're following religious activities. They're in a they're in a church or something that says, well, if you do these things, you're okay. That is not God's way of being saved. And this is something that he's telling the Jews. doesn't matter. Jerusalem isn't that sacred place. He goes, you have to have the right attitude. God is against your beliefs that you're trusting in. And this is why I say, if somebody, and we went go back to what we talked about in, if somebody can commit a sin repeatedly and they're not convicted by it, they really need to look and say, am I one of his children? Because God says he disciplines his children. Now, is it something that you're doing that is not, not necessarily a sin? Because there's a lot of things we call sin that aren't necessarily sins because there's no thou shalt not. Uh, drinking would be one of those. You know, there's no verse in the Bible that says thou shalt not drink. Now, there are plenty of verses that says do not be drunk. Okay, but just somebody drinking is not necessarily sinning. Now, if God has told them not to do it, now it's sin. Smoking would be one of those things. There's some people that are adamant that, sin, that smoking is a sin, and they'll give you lots of verses, and I'm not going to go into all those. But there is no verse in the Bible that says thou shalt not smoke. Okay, there are verses that says don't, don't harm the temple of God and all the, other, all the other verses that people will use. Now, if you read that verse and God convicts you that your, your smoking is harming the temple of God and he tells you not to, not to smoke, then you better not smoke. Uh, I was convicted of, in the past about speaking out against government officials because I was very vehement against one of our past presidents who's no longer a president. Uh, and... And God said, no, you're not even praying for this guy. Quit talking about him. So I've learned my lesson not to talk about these presidents because they're placed there by God. We think we place them there by voting, but God puts them in place. And if it's not his will for them to be in place, they won't be in place. And that's like this coming up election. I don't know who's going to win. I really don't care because whatever we get is what we deserve. I'm going to pray and I'm going to cast my vote and all that other stuff. But it, the one that God wants there will be there. Well, we still need to do our part, especially in our country. But we need to be careful of all of this. You know, gambling is another one of those areas where you know you go, there is no verse that says thou shalt not gamble. Now there's plenty of verses about being good stewards and those are the ones that have come against gambling will go, well it says right here, be a good steward. Don't waste good. well fine if that's what God if that's how God is applying that scripture to you then for you, gambling is wrong. Uh, I would say that if you're going to gamble every day of the week, you've probably got a problem in, in, in sinning, but that's again between you and God. But we look at this and say, God is the one that is setting the standards. Now, if you're violating a thou shalt not, then you know you're sinning and you need to, you know, you need to get right with God and, and, and be convicted of your, of your sin. But you know, as we grow, God is going to work things out of our life that Ten years ago wasn't a sin, and all of a sudden God says, you can't do this anymore, and now it becomes a sin. And then we have to be able to watch and say, okay, now I have to obey God because he said don't do this to me. Does that mean I'm going to hold everybody? Would I tell everybody everything that I've been told not to do after 44 years of walking with God and try to tell you, you've got to walk just the same way God's told me to walk? Absolutely not. Because it, number one, it's taken me 44 years to get here. Number two... I started out as a Christian. I didn't go down a lot of the paths that a lot of people go down. So there's not a lot of other things that God's telling me. So he's telling me little fine-tuned things to say, this is wrong for you. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling between us and God. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that you can go out and do whatever you feel like doing because God has rules. But he, and he's going to tell you what those are. If you're doing something and you're feeling that God is convicting you and saying, 
don't do this, for you that's sin. I could not smoke. I could not drink because God would say that would be a sin for me to do it. But am I going to tell somebody else who's doing it they can't? Absolutely not, because that's between them and God. We need to let people grow with God at their rate. Now, if I see somebody living in, in adultery or fornication and I've got a relationship with them, I'm going to talk to them and say, hey, you know, God doesn't allow that. But again, what relationship do I have with them? Why should I be sharing that with them if I don't really know them? I'll pray with them otherwise. But if I know them well enough to know that they're living in fornication or adultery, then I have some kind of relationship with them. And we pray for them. Our first step is always pray for them. And you know, I'm amazed how many times, even as Christians, we tend to downplay what prayer is all about. The world always does. You know, all you Christians ever want to do is pray for people. Well, you know, if they understood the power of prayer, they would really understand that that's the most important thing I can do for somebody. If I can do nothing else but pray for them, I've unleashed the power of heaven toward them. That is a great function. Now, that doesn't mean if somebody comes to the church and asks for food, I'm going to go, oh, we're going to pray for you. Go away because we've got a food closet. We're going to give them food. But if we can help them, we do. We oftentimes have people that bring clothes in and we give the clothes away to people. We do a lot of things in our little church to help people. Can we do everything? No. But we do as much as we can, and we'll pray for those who, in areas that we can't help them. Because prayer is the most important thing. And how many times have I heard even Christians say, well, I've tried everything else that I can do. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll pray. Well, let's make prayer the first thing. And maybe God will show you when you start praying that you could actually help yourself, so you go out and help yourself. Other times he's going to go, I'm glad you asked. Let me, give you, let me help you. Other times he's going to give us an answer that we never even thought of because we had ourselves so focused on the problem and God says, well, I've got a whole other area for you. But we need to get into this place where we say, God, I need your help. I don't know. I don't even try to tell God how to help me because I'll go, God, I have a problem. I'm going to put it in your hands. Because usually when I tell him how I want the answer, he doesn't give it that way anyway, and I miss the answer because I'm looking for the answer that I asked for. And I miss the answer that God gave me. And this is why we need to be very careful about how we pray. God, I need this to happen, and I need you to do it this way. Now, I've heard people tell you that you have to pray in such specifics that you'll know that God answered. I say, let's just pray and let God answer and be looking for the answer to, that he gives us. I've had people go, well, I, you need a car, so you need to pray for a, a cherry red Camaro because that's what you want, and, and God's got some other car for you, and he gives you that car, and you're disappointed because you didn't get your cherry red Camaro. Precatory prayers are all through the Bible by many men of God, so you want to be careful with that statement. No, I mean, in this world, in this time to do again. Paul did it, just as he said. He said, reward Demas with what he deserves. He attacked me, God, and he said, God, go get him, basically. There's, there's a time for precatory prayers. I think it's not that often. David did it all the time. Uh, he was a little, little violent with his, but he was a man of war. That was the way he was. Paul, on several occasions, said God reward them for, what they have, for the harm that they have done. I, don't, I'm not, I have never prayed a precatory prayer because I'm actually afraid of watching what God can do because I've watched him come against people who desert, that have harmed others. And I've watched the way God can come against them. And it's scary when God moves against somebody and takes everything away from them up to and including their life sometimes. So I am not inclined to pray a precatory prayer. Does everybody know what a precatory prayer is? It's a prayer of vengeance, uh, an attack. I am always very leery of that. Now, I have also never had a place where somebody has done so much harm that they that I really feel that they deserve it. But I have seen people, and I've shared this, you know, I, I, uh, the head deacon and I went to this one man in this one church that was attacking the pastor for really no reason at all. And we told him he had to stop. You could not be attacking the pastor, especially when he didn't have any other reason that he didn't like the pastor for whatever reason. And we told him that you really need to stop. This is not good. Very shortly thereafter, 
His wife divorced him. He lost his job. Two of his, two of his three sons died, and the other one got very sick. I totally believe it was because of what he was doing that God judged him, especially after he had been warned that he needs to stop. Now, were we practicing precatory? No, we were, we were looking at him to get mercy and get him to turn. See, now that would be the part that I would be, have a problem with, that you were glad that they got what they wanted. I understand, believe me, I understand why you would be glad. Believe me, I understand that. But I would hope that you're sorry for them more than glad. For us as Christians, we probably want to be as gracious as we can for people and prayer, give loving prayers. I think that the proper place for precatory prayer is probably somebody who is in leadership, who has seen the harm done to the flock from somebody who is not going to repent. When Paul prayed for his for Demas to be rewarded according to his actions, I am absolutely sure that he had gone to Demas many times and said, hey, what you're doing is wrong. You need to correct it. You're hurting people. And Demas had not repented. And then Paul said, okay, fine, God, go get him. <laughs> David, the king, of, the king of the land, you know, saying, God, I want you to get these people because they're hurting your people and my people. For us as day-to-day Christians, I think our prayers need to be more of, love and care for people and good 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 to come to them uh it's the same thing as for us to go and do vigilante justice is wrong for the government to come along and implement justice is their job so and there's a lot of people who don't make those kinds of distinctions the government's job is to protect the people romans tells us that that they have the power of the sword because they are to protect the citizens and if you and he went on to further to say as long as you're doing good you don't you're not worried about them having the power of the sword the power of the sword is against those who are disobedient we look at this and and sometimes our government is bad and <laughs> uses it wrong but but the government's job is to give justice and that's why when people will say well it's wrong to have capital punishment god did capital punishment all through the scriptures but who was to do it the judges at the hand of the individual who was broke, you know, but it had to go through the judgment process. You couldn't just drag the person out in the street and stone them because they had violated something. There had to be the court case. The witnesses had to be presented. And this is very important for us to understand. There are things that are true for, and this goes again where we're at, we're all equal before God at the foot of the cross, but there are people with higher positions. The government has a higher position amongst the people. The father has a higher position in the family than, than, than the kids. The, the pastor has a higher. But along with the responsibility, uh, with the power and authority comes great responsibility. And this is something we have to be aware of is some people say, I, would like, I, want, to be, I want to have that power. Well, are you ready to take the responsibility that comes with that authority? I think about for being a pastor. There are people that look at a pastor and say, you better be walking the right way because they look at you at a much higher. I mean, they, we talked about how you look at Christians at a higher standard. When you get to be a pastor, they look at you, you know, you can't swear, you can't, you can't say a bad word, you can't, do, you can't do anything without people looking at you and saying, well, how can you be a pastor and do that? Well, because I'm human. But I understand also what they're saying. The pastor is expected to be somebody who's held to a higher standard, and, we told, and we're told they are. The choices for a pastor is that they need to have, be living at a higher standard. Not because they're, they're stronger or anything, but because more people look at them than are looking at the everyday Christian. But we all have that higher standard as far as people looking at us. We're not to be a stumbling block in front of people that says, they're a Christian and they do that. We all know people that are in that boat, don't we? We all know people who claim to be a Christian who don't, who may or may not be Christians, but don't live up to the name of Christ. Usually they're probably not Christians in the first place because of the way that they're living and the way they're doing it. Oh, they all, do, they all tend to believe. But Jesus said in that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I? There are going to be many people that are not going to enter the kingdom because they're not really God's children. And this is why Paul said to us, examine yourself to be sure that you're in the faith. Am I truly a Christian? Am I convicted when I do wrong? Am I growing in, in, the, in faith? Or 
if I just used his name. This is something I've seen in the past. Even when I've looked at people that have gone to Bible college with me and they, they handled the word of God, they said they were called to be pastors and they looked, they looked like they were on fire and then you look at them five years later and they've totally abandoned Christ. We need to be careful of when we look at people and say they're a Christian or not Christian because we don't know whether we're catching them in a hot time or when they're really struggling. And I've shared this, when I, was, when I walked away from the church for two years in, in my early 20s because I became a workaholic and just drifted away from church, if anybody had known me during those two years, they were going, what kind of Christian are you? You don't go to church or, and all of this. Was I any less a Christian? No, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew I needed to be in church. I was just in disobedience. So we need to be careful, but this is why we analyze and look at ourselves and say, God, am I one of your children? Do I really know you? And the one thing I've said, if you know Jesus, you know that you know that you know him <laughs> because you know that you're his child. You know that, that he's lifted up your heart. You know that he's put that heart of flesh in you. You know that you fall in love with his word and you need his word. You know that you need the body of Christ, the teaching. There's all of these things that you know that you need. need. You know that you're in that relationship with people. When I meet somebody who goes, well, how do you know there's a God? Well, I can, I can tell you all the scientific reasons, but you know, I am in a relationship with him. I talk to him and he answers me and he rewards me and he's given me so much peace. I know that he's, a, that he's real. Now I can show you the other reasons. If you need convinced scientifically, I can show you the scientific reasons why I believe that there's a God. I can give you the philosophical reasons why I believe there's a God, but I know him. <laughs> It's very important for us to make our decision and stand for God. Now, will we always have all the answers that we need to have? Probably not. The longer you've walked with him, the more you know him, the more you know about him, the more answers you're going to have to the point where there's not that many answers. For me, I've been witnessing, I've been talking with people, there's very few things that come my way that I have never heard before. Because there's only so many arguments. There's nothing new under the sun. There's only so many arguments that they're going to do. We get to know it. The longer we walk with God, the better we're going to get at defending what we believe as long as we are studying. Now, you could be with God for 40 years. If you don't get into the Word of God and, and really learn, then you have no answers, even though you've got a long time under your belt. There's an old adage, you know, do you have 30 years of experience or do you have one year of experience repeated 30 years? And there's a lot of people, even especially in Christianity, they know the basics. They know they said a prayer, and that's about as far as they ever go. They had that one experience, that's all they know, and that's a sad thing. The closer we get to God, the more he's going to show us where we're sinful. And the amazing thing about it is, I am more convinced that I'm sin more sinful now than I was in the early days because he's showing me all the stupid things that I have in my brain. You know, it's fairly simple to get rid of the, the outward things, the drugs, the... The, the affairs, you know, the lying. We get further down in our life and God shows us our motivation behind some of what we do. That nobody knows it is there because it doesn't show up. It's not spoken, but God shows you, well, you did this, but you had the wrong attitude about this. You did it out of compulsion because you had to. That was wrong. Everybody else looks at you, wow, look at all the good things he's doing. And God is saying, no, you, you, wrong reasons. And you look at things like, I used to read this, I used to watch this, I used to do this. But that also shows that you're growing. That's one of the ways we can look back and say, am I in the faith? Am I walking closer to God today than I was a year ago? And that's the most important question we can ask. Are there things in my life that God has worked out of my life because I'm drawing closer to him? It gets tougher because they're harder, but at the same time, it gets easier the more that we give over to him, the more we walk with him, in some ways, the easier it gets. Uh, just as adults don't really have trouble walking unless there's some sickness or other problem. But, you know, when you're a baby and you're falling down and learning to walk, you know, if you see an adult taking two steps and falling down all the time, there's something seriously wrong with that adult. But when it's a baby learning to walk, we go, good job, you took two steps. Good job, you took three steps. But if you saw somebody 30 years old that was just trying to wobble around, trying to learn to walk, we would know that something was wrong. And I'm not talking about somebody who's drunk or, or stoned or that can't, or, or dazed because of an accident. We're, you know what I'm saying. You know, we just see somebody trying to learn to walk at 20, 30 years old. We're going to go, 
there's something seriously wrong with this person. Well, spiritually, it's the same way. We walk with God, and, we, and once we learn to walk, he's going, okay, now I want you to run. Okay, now you know how to run. Now we're going to teach you to do whatever. You're going to learn to play basketball or, or sew or, or do ballet or something. You know, let's go beyond. And God keeps pushing us to the next level and the next level. He doesn't want Christians crawling around on their hands and knees. Oh, I'm still a baby. I've been with God for 40 years, but I'm still a baby crawling around. We should be walking. We should be eating solid food. We should be moving forward with him. And that's why he's, Paul said, examine your life. Examine your life. Are you truly in the faith? Are you growing? Are you changing? And this is important for us to do because humans have this innate ability to lie to ourselves. <laughs> you know, I'm doing okay as you're cruising over the cliff, but I'm doing okay. Everything's good. I'm driving my car. The brakes have been squealing for, for, for five months now, but I'm, I can stop anytime I want to as they finally decide not to work. And we just keep convincing ourselves that we can put it off, we can put it off, we don't have to deal with it, but we also deal with, do the same thing in our life. Everything's okay, I've been going down the wrong path, you know, I've, I've been having this lust problem, uh, no big deal, no, nothing's going to happen. Well, I've been, I've been seeing this person on the side, you know, but no big deal, we're just, we're just having dinner together. Next thing you know, you're sleeping together and divorcing, <laughs> ending up in a divorce because you've lied to yourself and convinced yourself that everything was okay, I can handle this. I can get away with it. I am so strong that I don't have to worry about it. And we need to be able to look and say, God says, don't. Don't do these things. Don't put yourself in that place. Let's close in prayer with a little bit over. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to study. We ask that you go with us as we go out today. Help us to continue to grow with you. Help us to be serving you in the way that you want us to serve. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.